Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. In the Pew Bible, it is on page 61. That's Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. Exodus 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day before the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your, your neighbor's. Our focus today is on the ninth commandment, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, please keep your Bibles open to that passage, Exodus chapter 20. I hope you all had a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. It's uh, great to be back with you after a week of uh, visiting my family in Canada. I want to thank you all very much for your expressions of love and kindness to me and my family this season, we treasured all of your cards and gifts and baked goods. And uh, I, it's, our, it's our opinion that we have been spoiled rotten once again by a loving congregation. We're so thankful to the Lord for you. And I'm uh, also thankful for Deacon Rob Wilson, who uh, preached last Sunday in my absence. That was not an easy time to, for a guy to have to prepare a sermon and on top of that my dad always who was a pastor always used to say that the Sunday after Christmas is probably the worst Sunday in the life of a church it's the hardest congregation to have to preach to given that everyone's overtired and um, distracted I, I didn't mention all of that to Rob when I asked him to preach and hopefully that wasn't an issue because it was an excellent sermon, and I expect that you were all fully engaged in it. Well, the holidays are great, 
but it's always great to be back in the routine, isn't it? We, we like to get back to life and back to reality. And for us here at Grace Baptist Church, that means that we return once again to our exposition of the book of Exodus. And it means getting back to chapter 20 and to our study of the Ten Commandments. Today, we've arrived at the Ninth Commandment. And I think I've probably mentioned before that USA Today poll that found that 60% of Americans couldn't even name five of the Ten Commandments. And as people are racking their brains, one of the answers that, that they give, this is one of the most common answers, is thou shalt not lie. And I'm not sure if the pollsters give these folks credit you know, for that answer as kind of a fair summary of the ninth commandment. No doubt lying and uh, being false to the truth is a very great evil. It's roundly uh, condemned in scripture. It's totally out of line with who God is as a God of truth. But strictly speaking, the ninth commandment is concerned with a particular form of lying, namely the bearing of false witness against your neighbor. And as we take a closer look at this commandment, no doubt we'll say things just generally about lying or generally about the need to speak the truth, but I think it will be helpful for us to, to follow the emphasis of this commandment and to focus particularly on the kind of lying that is employed in the effort to seriously injure our fellow man. I want us to look at this particular sin under three main headings. And the first of those is, let's look at the gory details about this sin. The gory details about this sin, gory, you know, that, that, adjective probably calls to mind something very dark and gruesome and horrific. When I hear that word gory, it cues the music in my mind to that, you know, the high-pitched string <laughs> of that shower scene in Psycho. And you might be thinking that the word gory would have been put to better use in the Sermon on the Sixth Commandment, the commandment against murder. In fact, I suspect that, that you may be thinking right now that whatever bearing false testimony involves, it's not even close to being on the same level as murder. I think that's probably what we just initially think about this. But have you ever considered that there, that there are other ways that you can destroy a person's life other than you know taking a knife to them when they're in the shower? Has it occurred to you that you can make mincemeat of a person's reputation? Your, your, uh, your words, the things that you say, your accusations can get a person canceled, to use the, the modern expression. Or as Pastor Matt says, you can get them deleted, which I think is actually probably the better term. It's, it's a more picturesque, more accurate term. Uh, Proverbs 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 9 says that with his mouth, the godless would destroy his neighbor. With his mouth, the godless person would destroy his neighbor. 
Now, how about that adjective? Godless. Godless men. I think I'd be hard-pressed to find a better, more descriptive adjective for our current culture. Godless. We're, we're like the generations that, that existed during the period of the judges where we read over and over again in that book that there was no fear of God before their eyes. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's what you have in a culture when, when there's no fear of God. You have, you have a people that are just determined to do wh whatever benefits them, whatever seems right, and that actually is a brutal culture. And we, we saw this when we studied the book of Judges. It's actually one of the goriest books in all of scripture, and it's precisely because of their rejection of the one true and living God. And we would do well to remember the connection that there are that there is between the two tables of the law here. Remember the first um, four have to do with our relationship with God. And then the next six have to do with our relationship with our fellow man. And the two of those things are, are intimately, intricately connected. The way that we think and act and respond to God, relate to God, is going to play out in how we relate to other people. And, and vice versa. So it's no wonder, shouldn't surprise us at all, that our godless culture is also characterized by deep division and violence and the des desire to destroy and delete each other. For example, this week people were waiting with bated breath for the release of the 150 clients of Jeffrey Epstein. Okay, people were waiting for that, like a, a pack of wolves are waiting for some red meat. And you get the strong impression that um, people's eagerness along these lines are not because they have this righteous indignation and they have a, a zeal for justice and all of the rest. No, you, you get the impression that people are just very eager to see wealthy, powerful men taken down. A famous quarterback teased a... Uh, tease the name of a famous night show host who as someone that we should expect to be on that list and he did that in an attempt to ruin that guy's reputation and as it turns out that that night show host's name was not on the list but the damage had already been done replying to that false accuser the comedian was deadly serious when he tweeted your reckless words put my family in danger. And to me, one of the clearest examples of this, it happened a few years ago now during the confirmation hearings for the Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And everything seemed to be a slam dunk for this particular nominee. He was well qualified. He, he excelled in everything that he had set his hand to do. That is until Dr. Christine Blasey Ford came forward with allegations about an assault that she said that she experienced at the hand of Kavanaugh when she was a teenager. She said, in the course of that testimony, indelible in the hippocampus was the laughter, the uproarious laughter of this perpetrator and his accomplice 
And I, I remember that um, line specifically uh, when Ford testified to Congress. Conspicuously absent from her hippocampus, however, was any detail about the dates or the times or the people or even the place of this party. And the one friend that Ford did mention uh, did not corroborate the story at all. And in the end, Kavanaugh was confirmed by a narrow margin, but the damage had been done. Um, he provided an, a very angry and I think rightfully angry response during that hearing. And, and this is what he said in part. Kavanaugh said, this has destroyed my family and my good name, a good name built up through decades of very hard work and decades of public service. It's hard to believe that was five years ago. And since that time, it seems, it, it almost seems tame. It seems like since that time, people are just more and more comfortable making baseless accusations and engaging in character assassination. Now, when I say people, I wish I was just talking about the people out in the world. Unfortunately, I'm also talking about the people of God. So let's examine ourselves and as we get into the, the gory details of this sin. And I actually want to start with a, a more positive observation. I hope this is an encouragement to you. I want you to consider what this commandment implies. But let me take let me bring you to it just with a running start. So what's what's implied in the commandment of that God forbids murder? The sixth commandment. What's implied in that commandment? Answer, God values your life. It's precious to him. It's sacred. Here's another question. What's implied by God forbidding theft in the eighth commandment? The answer is he values your property. It's, it's, that's your property that's, that's right for you to own. Yes, he has given it to you as a stewardship, but he values your ownership of that property. So my question is what's implied by this command against bearing false testimony? The answer is that God values your reputation. God esteems your good name. And I know that that's a pretty simple point, but I hope that it, it's a profound and precious point to you. Many of us are uh, of the theological stripe that, that tends towards self-deprecation. You know, we, we rightly want the Lord to increase and we want ourselves to decrease. So it's easy for us to understand, say, the third commandment. The fact that the Lord God is concerned about his own name and his own reputation. And he will not hold guiltless those who take his holy good name in vain. We, we get that. No problem. Yes, that's good and that's right. It's much more difficult for, for us to see the ninth commandment as kind of like the, the second table correspondent to the third commandment. It's very difficult for us to grasp that the Lord is concerned about our name and our reputation. Have you ever thought about that? 
We can arrive at this same conclusion kind of through the back door, come at it from a different angle. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19. The wise man there lists for us six things. Check that. Seven things that the Lord hates. The Lord hates these things. They are abominations to him. The strongest possible word you could use. And though that list includes a false witness who breathes out lies. The Lord values your good name as well as the reputation of your neighbor. And so we ought to as well. Now it's important to begin with the cultural context of this commandment before kind of expanding that out to see some of the present applications. Um, the language here, the language of testimony indicates uh, a judicial context. Okay, so um, think about what's happening here. Israel is uh, expanding as a nation. They're increasing in numbers and they are freed now from, from Egypt. They are becoming a nation, a people of God, a nation in their own right. And there's some necessary infrastructure that comes along with nation building like that. We started to see some of it, some of this infrastructure back in chapter 18, where we saw Moses in the role of a judge. Okay, so he was wearing himself out because people were coming to him constantly with, with various complaints and conflicts that they were having with their neighbors. And it was up to Moses and Moses alone to try to determine what the will of the Lord was in each of these particular matters. And his fa you'll remember perhaps that his father-in-law Jethro, once when he came um, for the Christmas holidays, uh, he offered him some good advice, which was for Moses to appoint godly, faithful men kind of as circuit judges who could handle cases by dividing them up according to tribes and clans and that sort of thing. And that would free Moses up to be sort of the, the Supreme Court. He could handle the particularly difficult ones that would come to him. And every functioning society has to have a, some sort of a judiciary. It needs to have some sort of a legal system that can decide cases according to the rule of law, cases that are brought by plaintiffs, people that have complaints, and cases that are contested by defendants people that have another side of the story. And the hallmark in this system is fairness. It's justice, that's where the, it gets its name. It has to do with what is right and fair in that particular situation. A Couple of weeks ago, the town of Springwater honored Justice Donald Haywood uh, upon his retirement from the bench and uh, among the festivities uh, was the presentation of a plaque that was in recognition of 30 plus years of, quote, fair decisions. And that's the essence of a good judge, fairness. Someone who can decide things with wisdom and fairness and do what is right. Now, in order to get fair decisions and to have fair trials, there's a number of rules and, and principles and safeguards. I understand that I've embarked here on a huge topic. Um, if you wanted ever to do a deep dive on some of the stuff I'm talking about, I would encourage you to go to law school. 
But I'm sure that you're familiar with some of these concepts at least. These are so important. The burden of proof, the presumption of innocence until proven guilty, the, the right that you have as the accused to face your accuser, various rules of evidence, the, the stuff that can be admitted and the stuff that cannot be admitted because it's based on hearsay or some, some other major problem that would, that would destroy the, the credibility of that evidence. And by the way, I hope you recognize that much of our modern legal system is built on the principles of biblical justice. God is a God of justice. And in large part, he has revealed to us, his creatures, what constitutes fairness in legal proceedings and in our dealings with each other. And here's one of the key principles. I'll have to just be satisfied to give you kind of the bottom line. Here's a key principle to guarantee or to, I won't say guarantee. Here's a key principle for fairness. The Lord God says every matter must be established on the basis of two or three witnesses. Witnesses are people who can truthfully attest to the fact that they saw a particular wrong take place, that they experienced it. They saw it with their own two eyes. And it was very necessary, especially in a pre-CSI type world, that there would be a plurality of witnesses. Otherwise, you would just have one person's word against someone else's, and there's no real way to adjudicate that. Otherwise, any person with an accusation and an axe to grind could destroy another person's livelihood or, depending on the severity of the allegation, could destroy that person's life. So for the sake of fairness, the Lord requires evidence for these allegations, specifically in the form of multiple witnesses. By the way, this is what the Lord still requires even in the church. For example, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19 says, do not even entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. Don't even, don't even entertain it. And with this command, the Lord is protecting pastors from careless, baseless, ill-formed, one-off accusations from malcontents that would destroy that man's good name and his ministry. What a gracious thing for the Lord to provide for that. But it's not just pastors that have this protection. When you look at the process of church discipline, for example, that the Lord Jesus outlines in Matthew 18, you're struck, I think, by a couple of things. First, you're struck by the fact that the Lord is very careful, very concerned to protect a person's reputation as much as possible so that in that first step, when, when you have a grievance against a person, when, when you believe that they have sinned against you, you're to go to them personally, just the two of you. No one else is to even know about it, to hear about it. And that is to guard that person's dignity and their good name. You're to go to them privately, and that's the Lord being concerned about your reputation and theirs. And the matter is, is between the two of you, but if that person refuses to listen to you, then it becomes necessary to bring two or three others. Why? Well, Jesus explains 
so that every charge may be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And this is the wisdom of God revealed to us so that we can be fair and just in all of our dealings. However, I messed up a few minutes ago, this, is, this does not guarantee fairness. This is not a foolproof system. The problem is the world is full of fools. And we have wicked hearts, and we, we found ways of gaming the system to try to get the outcomes that our sinful hearts are desiring. And we say, oh, so we need two or three witnesses to establish a charge? Okay, well, then I'll just find two or three witnesses who are willing to lie. People who will take the stand and, uh, you know, with their right hand, put their right hand on their Bibles, and, and swear to tell the, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, but then with their left hand, they, they've got them crossed behind their back. I, I know people like that. I can find people like that. I can bring these guys as witnesses, and on the basis of their false testimony, that other person is fined, thrown in jail, maybe even forfeits their own life, and in whatever the case, has his reputation completely destroyed. So the Lord thundering from the mountain commands that you must not bear false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not. It's not a guideline. It's a law of God. That, now that's the immediate context of the commandment. What's first in view is what goes down on the stand, so to speak. But there, there's many other contexts in which we can and do break this commandment. In our day, maybe it was true back then too, there is a court that is higher in our land even than the Supreme Court, and that is the court of public opinion. And if you wanna, if you wanna really destroy a person's reputation and livelihood, you don't have to go through all of the time and the expense of, a, of the legal system. We can do it merely with a word or a text or a tweet. We give false testimony against our neighbor whenever we create or repeat unfounded accusations against them, when we impute motives to them, when we gossip about them. We, we're, we're seeking to paint them in a bad light so that we by contrast, look good. When we create a, that bad impression of them just by simple innuendo, even by misuse of the truth in order to create that particular impression, ninth commandment violations take place far more often, it seems to me, over coffee or in the church foyer or in the comment or review sections of websites or social media than, than in any courtroom. Now the Westminster Larger Catechism provides an exposition of the sins that are forbidden by this ninth commandment and their exposition of this particular commandment is larger by my account of any of the other commandments. In case you were thinking that maybe this is one that you haven't broken. And I'll just read you a sampling because we don't have time for me to read the whole question and answer. Here's, here's 
some of the things that are forbidden in the ninth commandment, according to the Westminster Catechism. Giving false evidence, wittingly appearing and pleading for an evil cause, passing an unjust sentence, forgery, concealing the truth, undue silence in a just cause, and holding our peace when iniquity calls for reproof, speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end, slandering, backbiting, tail-bearing, whispering, old-fashioned words for gossiping, misconstructing in intentions. You ever impute motives to, to someone? How could, you even, how could you ever know that? You don't have access to that. It's false testimony. Misconstructing intentions, words, and actions, flattering, thinking or speaking too highly or too meanly of ourselves and others, aggravating smaller faults, raising false rumors, receiving or countenancing evil reports, and stopping our ears against just defenses of those evil reports, evil suspicion, envying or grieving at the deserved credit of any, endeavoring or desiring to impair it, rejoicing in their disgrace and infamy, rubbing your hands while their downfall is imminent. And at the end of even that partial list, what can we say but once again, we are, all of us, condemned. Standing before our holy and righteous judge in his courtroom, the, the true testimony that's born against us is that we fail grievously and often to keep even this ninth commandment. And if we're on the same page about that, then it will be helpful, I think, for us to see our second point, which is the gory death for this sin. The gory death for this sin. And the logic here is pretty simple. Bearing false testimony is an abomination to the Lord. He, it's evil. He hates it. And because of who God is and the holiness and righteousness of his character, he must punish this evil and punish it severely. Scripture affirms this both by explicit statement and by example. As for explicit statement, consider Proverbs 19.9, which says, a false witness will not go unpunished. He who breathes out lies will perish. Or take Psalm 101, verse 5, which David, and ultimately Christ, says, Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. But the truth of this is also borne out by way of example. And one thinks of the, the wicked Queen Jezebel, who is the mastermind behind this plot to steal a man's vineyard, some, some great real estate that her husband, the king, really wanted. And so in the name of her husband, she induced two worthless fellows, the Bible describes them, to bring a charge against this vineyard owner named Naboth, saying that, that Naboth had, had cursed both God and the king. 
So these false witnesses came forward and made the charge and said, I saw it, I heard it. That crime, uh, by the way, carries the punishment of death, cursing God, cursing the king. And so when, when these, these worthless fellows said this thing, of course, Naboth was taken out and he was stoned to death. All of this happened according to um, the queen's plan. And in judgment, the Lord God sent word to the king, King Ahab, saying that he and his family and his wife would die right there. And that the dogs, speaking specifically of his wife, the dogs shall lick her blood in the streets. It's a pretty gory death, wouldn't you say? But it's the due punishment for sin. The Puritan uh, Thomas Watson is also very helpful on this point. And uh, I get this from the very best. Some of you have uh, mentioned to me how much you've appreciated um, the fact that we've kind of stopped and studied these Ten Commandments. This little mini-series you've said has been helpful. And I, I, it has been for me, too. And so if you're in that category and if you want to do some more studying and thinking about these things, I could not recommend a book more highly than Thomas Watson's treatment of the Ten Commandments. That, that'll be, uh, you, you should ask for a belated Christmas present from, from your wife, from your husband. Thomas Watson on the Ten Commandments. But Watson points out how devilish this particular sin is because Satan, after all, is the accuser of the brethren. And so it stands to reason that whoever participates in, in this sort of deeds of the devil is going to end up meeting the same end as the devil, who you know is destined for hell and for eternal destruction. And Watson strongly urges us to take this to heart. He writes, oh, tremble at this sin. A perjured person person who lies and falsely testifies, a perjured person is the devil's excrement. He is cursed in his name and seared in his conscience. Hell gapes for such a windfall. Hell is just mouth open, licking its chops, waiting for the punishment of this particular devilish evil. And the law of God goes on to prescribe the real world consequences for the breach of this commandment. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 16 to 21. You don't have to turn there, but listen to it. God says, if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do for his brother, do to his brother. And so you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest, the other people, should hear and fear, and they shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. According to the Old Testament law, the, pun the just punishment for a false accusation was that you, 
the accuser, received whatever consequence you were pushing for your neighbor to receive. If it was six years in prison, then it's six years in prison for you. If total cancellation, deletion, the complete loss of your reputation, the loss of your career, the inability to ever work again in your town, then that's what the false witness gets. If you were seeking the death penalty for that person, uh, for these trumped up charges, well then, it's the death penalty for you. Life for life. And the Lord says, I'm going to paraphrase him if I can do that carefully. The Lord says, I know how this is going to go. You know, you're going to be reluctant to inflict that kind of a punishment. I know that you probably don't think it's that big of a deal. And you're going to go, you're going to go all Mr. T on this guilty person, which is to say you're going to pity the fool. But, but you have to steal your spine. Your eyes shall not pity. You're, you should show no mercy. This is the way that you purge evil from your midst. This is the way that you deter other people who, who might have the same idea in the future. They might be tempted to break this commandment. They need to see and hear and fear. Give to the guilty person what it was that he wanted to come upon the one that he falsely accused. That's God's command in Deuteronomy 19. That's the bad news. And it sounds pretty gory. But, I, but I've got some good news today for all of us ninth commandment violators. There is mercy. There is pity. In, in the gospel, God takes pity on fools like us. There is full forgiveness for this sin, for every sin. There, there, is, there is atonement for the sin of bringing false accusations and destroying a person's reputation. How is this possible? The, does the judge just kind of sweep your sin under the carpet? No, that would make him an unjust judge. That would make God untrue to himself. He, he wouldn't just not get a plaque. He, he would cease to be God if he would ever just sweep sin under the carpet. That We have that idea about God, don't we? That, oh, he'll just forgive me. No, he cannot be true to his holy and righteous character to just sweep your sin under the carpet. He, that would make him a horrific judge. Whatever happens, God must be both just and the justifier. And here's the only way for that to happen. The only way for that to happen is for God to make him who knew no sin to become sin for us. The only way for that this could possibly happen is that God sends forth his one and only son to be a substitute for sinners. And Jesus died on that cruel cross, a, gore, a gory death not for any sin that, that he had committed, but because he was burying my sin. Even my sin of bearing false testimony, Christ bore that sin on his body on that tree. And irony of ironies, it was, humanly speaking, one of the reasons that Jesus died and was hung on a tree was because 
It was on the basis of trumped-up charges and false accusations. Jesus' death penalty was on the basis of untruth, of just lies, false allegations. But this was also according to the predetermined plan and will of his father, who willed that his son is going to take the death penalty in the place of sinners. Life for life. Remember what we deserve for breaking the ninth commandment is, is the punishment of whatever we wanted the innocent guy to get, we would get. Friends, I want you to behold the, the beauty and the wonder of this, that in the gospel, the innocent one gets the penalty that we deserve. There, there's a gory death required for this sin, but it was required of Jesus in my place. It's his life for mine. And praise be to God for his indescribable gift. Today, if you are convicted of your sin, then the only proper response is for you to, to reach out in faith and to embrace this Savior. There's mercy for you today. There's pity because of the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We call on you today to, to believe that, to receive it, by faith, and then experience full freedom and forgiveness. This is the truth that will set you free. And if you would like to know more about what that would look like for you, if you would like someone to pray with you and point you to Jesus, then we would invite you to come forward to this front pew at the end of the service. There, there's going to be some folks there that would just love to be able to minister to you however they can. But let me just say uh, a few words in closing under our third point about the godly deportment in view of this sin. The godly deportment in view of this sin. And the question simply is, how then shall we now live? What does it look like to live a transformed life in the light of such a glorious gospel in the midst of such a world that is steeped in false accusations and false testimony, how do we conduct ourselves in a godly way along these lines? And there's a whole lot that I could say about this. I know that you believe me when I say that. Um, but here's something that you won't believe me when I say, let me give you just a, a few quick things to consider. Um, first, be realistic. Be realistic. As a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you ought to expect that you're going to be on the receiving end of false accusations. This is what our Savior received at the hands of wicked people. They said he was a blasphemer, that he was a bastard, that he was a friend of sinners, that he was a, an insurrectionist. And they'll, they'll speak all kinds of evil against you too. Why, why would you expect any better treatment? Is a servant greater than the master? And this is how Christians down through history have been treated. Paul and the apostles, for example, they were accused of disorderly conduct and inciting a mob, various other charges. They were run out of ta town on a rail. And early Christians, as the church is developing, early Christians are charged with by, by wicked men 
They're charged with cannibalism, if you can believe it, because they regularly ate the body and the blood of their Lord. They were accused of incest regularly simply because they loved people that they called their brothers and their sisters. And sometimes they would even marry them, brothers and sisters in Christ. But no, they're, they're called incestuous. And on and on it, it goes. Be realistic. You, you shouldn't expect any different treatment than your Savior endured. And related to this is the second thing. Be rejoicing. Be rejoicing. Don't just be realistic, but be rejoicing in this. Rejoice for the unspeakable privilege of participating in the sufferings of Christ. Jesus says to us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And he might have added, and so they persecuted me. But there's glory in store. So rejoice in the great privilege of unity with your Savior in terms of what you endure. And rejoice in the prospect of eternal glory. The Bible also commands us to rejoice in, in truth. We are to be people of the truth. And, and truth, um, we need to be truth speakers. And not just truth speakers, but the Bible always gives us such an incredible balance. The Bible enjoins us to speak the truth paired with love. As we come once again to the summation of this commandment, and of all the commandments, it's love. It's love for God. It's love for your neighbor. And because we know Christ, we know what love is, don't we? We know that love is patient and kind. And love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes, love believes all things. You, if you truly love someone, you're going to believe the best about them. You're going to be very slow to believe evil reports about them. Love hopes all things, endures all things. And then, I guess I'll just mention this one. Be, be resolute. Be realistic, be rejoicing. Also be resolute. I don't know if you're still in the market for New Year's resolutions. I'm sure that ship has sailed. I'm sure it's possible that even your existing New Year's resolutions have crashed and burned at this point. Maybe you are in the market for some new ones, but uh, almost exactly 300 years ago, right around this time of year, a teenager named Jonathan Edwards crafted a number of resolutions. And among them were a lot about how he intended to treat his fellow man. And le again, let me just give you a sample here. I would commend all of them to you, but here's 16, number 16. Resolved, this 17-year-old said, never to speak evil of anyone so that it shall tend to his dishonor, more or less upon no account except for some real good. 
Here's his resolution number 31. Resolved never to say anything at all against anybody, but when it is perfectly agreeable to the highest degree of Christian honor and of love to mankind, agreeable to the lowest humility and sense of my own faults and failings, and agreeable to the golden rule, often when I have said anything against anyone, to bring it to and try it strictly by the test of this resolution. Number 34, resolved in narrations never to speak anything but the pure and simple verity. Number 36, resolved never to speak evil of any, except I have some particular good call for it. December 1722. And in January 2024, you can resolve to do the same thing. You can resolve that you're not even going to entertain an accusation against someone that you know and love and whose good name that you trust. You're not going to entertain willy-nilly accusations. They're going to be well-formed. They're going to be brought by two or three witnesses. You're not going to participate in the besmirching of anyone or the destruction of anyone's character or reputation. We're going to be people of truth by God's grace. We're going to extend love and kindness. We're going to seek to outdo each other in showing honor to one another. Let's, let's resolve to, to live lives that are characterized by love for our neighbor as well as love for our Father God and love for our Savior who gave himself up for us. Amen? Amen. Amen.